Welcome to War Room Politics with James Carville and I'm Albert Hunt. Subscribe to 2020 Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. James, before we get to this week's stupendous guest, I want to say we're starting a partnership today with American University Sign Institute of Policy and Politics from the campus. Now, with enormous respect for LSU and Wake Forest, no university will more light up the boards than AU with its rock star president, Sylvia Burwell. We hope Sylvia and the Sign Institute's Amy Dacey will let us ride those coattails uh, in the times ahead. We have the guest that you would want to have today, Jonathan Martin, the chief political correspondent of the New York Times. Jonathan, I'm going to start with a really tough question because that's the status that you command. Uh, you're not only a, a great reporter, but you're married above yourself, as Carvo and I did. <laughs> so I'm going to start with a really, really tough one. Monday night, you watched the LSU-Clemson game. Indeed. Tuesday night, you watched the Democratic debate. Which was more interesting? <laughs> Oh, that's the easiest question you could ever ask me. I've, wow. Uh, uh, having, having married a Louisiana and, and uh, I, you know, adopted the LSU Tigers, uh, I can say without hesitation that Monday was far more entertaining, especially if you take out the first quarter. It was, it was far more entertaining. Uh, the final three quarters of the game were, were, uh, were excellent and uh, uh, riveting for my money. And the debate last night, had a few moments, but uh, I don't think in the annals of political history we're going to be talking about the uh, the January 2020 debate here in, uh, in the years to come. Yeah, I actually thought it was kind of desultory. But tell me, <laughs> did anything change? Did any dynamic change? Is anything different on, uh, on, on, on January the 16th or 15th rather than on, on, the, on the 14th? I thought Warren helped herself last night out. I, I thought she made a compelling case for, for why she can win, not just in the moment with um, with Senator Sanders and talking about women uh, and, and the question of electability, but I thought throughout the night, look, she's a really articulate candidate. And in these kinds of forums, you got two hours, especially with a smaller stage, which you have now, you had six candidates there last night. I think she stands out in terms of being able to sort of make her case on her feet uh, in, in sort of uh, sound bites that, that are that, that are concise and, and compelling. Uh, I just don't know if that's necessarily going to change the equation for her in Iowa. She's got to sort of reverse her slide there. And I think that's why she was aggressive last night. It wasn't just because of this story about her and Sanders' meeting, I think it was also because she's feeling the urgency of trying to regain her status in Iowa, a state where she was leading for a good chunk of the fall and where she, she's obviously slipped. And so I thought that she helped herself last night. I'm just not sure that um, too many voters are going are gonna to be acting based upon last night. John, we'll come back uh, to that Sanders-Warren exchange a little bit later. But um, I agree with you. Uh, I thought uh, she was the standout last night. I also thought a winner probably was Joe Biden because he wasn't a loser. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And Al, I can't tell you, I talked um, with my colleagues about this. It is so striking that the national front runner, and if you believe a couple of polls that came out this week, the front runner in Iowa, New Hampshire, faces no incoming whatsoever. That there's no ordinance, you, you know, coming into his foxhole. Uh, the last debate before Iowa, uh, he is at or near the top in the Iowa polls, and nobody lays a glove on him. Uh, a little, you know, 
from the moderators, but nobody on stage. There, you know, his five rivals there don't confront him at all. It is so striking to me that he gets off with with basically a pass from his opponents. Um, I think part of that's because they don't want to do overt negativity. They've seen some of their rivals do it against Biden in the past. It hasn't gone well on the debate stage, and I think they're they're tempered because of that. But I just, you know, having watched some of these primaries over the years, it is remarkable to see somebody who is a, a clear threat to be the nominee uh, really face little scrutiny from his rivals in the last weeks before the first vote. So I think some of that uh, is the fact that Trump attacks Biden so much that the other candidates are afraid to attack him because it looks like they're going to be ganging up with Trump on Biden. I, I'm, I mean, you know, it's, it's that bad out there. But uh, I, I agree with you guys. I think Warren did herself some good last night. She was more aggressive. I was kind of surprised about how unaggressive the other candidates were, uh, particularly uh, Judge and uh, Klobuchar. I mean, I, I, th- I thought there'd be, a, you know, a little, little more infighting there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, James. I I thought that um, Buttigieg, like Warren, had to sort of do something to make his case out there, uh, have a you know compelling uh, rationale, or you know, maybe draw a contrast with his rivals. He just didn't do it last night, and I didn't feel the urgency f- uh, from him, which you know. Given what's happened to his standing in Iowa, uh, I thought he would feel more pressure to kind of stand up there and and deliver. And he just didn't really he didn't really do it. Um, it might be because he, the assumption is the Iowans don't want negativity here in the final weeks before uh, before votes. But I agree on that. I thought Klobuchar. Uh, also, you know, should be feeling some pressure. Obviously, Iowa for her is do or die. She's got to get in that sort of top tier in Iowa, uh, or it's going to be hard for her to go on. And I didn't really see her make any uh, obvious effort to um, to stand out there like she has in some past debates. Yeah, I, and I don't know Warren. It, it seems to think that her votes and Bernie's votes are all. She's got to challenge him to get the votes on the left. I think there are potential Warren votes. They're now voting for Buttigieg, or voting for Klobuchar, maybe some voting for Yang. You know, even a few of the older, older Biden voters. All of her growth is not over on Bernie's side. And by the way, a lot of those people are not going to leave. Yeah, no, there, there's a lot of cross-pollination, uh, as you guys know. It, it's not a sort of neat uh, progressive versus moderate out there. There's plenty of voters who, who look at it uh, through a different lens. And like, clearly, the Sanders-Warren top alternatives are the other. But there's plenty of voters, and I've talked to them out there, who um, are considering Warren, but also thinking about candidates like Buttigieg. So it's uh, it's not all just Sanders to Warren. Yeah, you know, I, I, um, I let's go back to that Sanders Warren exchange. Uh, I'm going to do something I rarely do. I really thought that CNN did a dreadful job uh, on that exchange because basically they asked Bernie a question, and he said, "I did not say that a, a woman could not be elected." They then went and asked 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 Warren a question. What did you think when he said that? She said, I disagreed. And that was the end of it. I mean, they basically were accusing one another either of lying or misrepresentation. I'm not normally into the gotcha kind of questions, but that was that was a fairly big deal. And it just kind of dribbled off until after the debate was over and she refused to shake hands with him. And I think, by the way, uh, speaking of 
this debate being uh, recalled in history. I think this debate may ultimately be recalled just for those two moments. Uh, you know, Warren standing up there and saying that the men on stage have a worse political record than the women, and then uh, that that heated if if if. Uh, uh, Mike's off moment there at the end of the debate where Warren wouldn't shake his hand and where Sanders appeared to be agitated and talking to her. I think that's what we'll uh, recall from this from this this contest. And by the way, it's important to note that it's there's such a risk in a multi-candidate primary of two candidates sort of going negative against each other. And I think that may also be part of the hesitation from, from Buttigieg and Klobuchar last night, by the way, is you know, they don't want to get in a, in a mud fight because oftentimes when that happens in, in this kind of a six-way race, that can redound to somebody else's benefit besides the, you know, party A and party B who are engaged in the fight. And I think that's why progressives are so worried this week, guys, is because they see that, that this escalating fight between Warren and Sanders, and, and they worry it's going to hurt both of them. Well, well, let me make a point, John, because you're so right, but that even is more true with the Iowa caucuses. Because the way they work, you get into a room, and if one candidate doesn't have that threshold, then what yeah. they, everyone else, or those that do, try to enlist them. If yes. bitterness, uh, you know, comes in between candidates, yeah. that makes it a bit harder to enlist right. other people at various places. It sure does. It sure does. Remember some time ago we read a story about how Sanders and Warren had a secret meeting where they agreed not to attack each other? And I, I couldn't stop laughing when I read the story. <laughs> Because that secret meeting and that secret agreement is now completely falling apart from everything I can tell. Yeah, and you know it's a fascinating relationship because they 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 are friendly. They do share a worldview. They share a contempt for kind of conventional politics. Uh, uh, they are true believers, uh, but they're also politicians and, and they're ambitious and they have their their rivalries and they have you know a sort of history of sl- slights, real and perceived. So. Uh, Look, this is inevitable. I mean, how many primaries have we seen where candidates sort of started with these de facto non-aggression packs and inevitably they started to clash? Heck, I can remember where Ted Cruz was trying to stick close to, you know, you know Trump for most of 2015. And then the two of them were bitter uh, opponents once the primary got going. Uh, Jonathan, I'm going to wade into this with great trepidation because I'm probably going to alienate my wife uh, and my daughter But I think there's kind of, uh, you know, a mantra has developed that the Democratic Party has a problem uh, with women and candidates of color, uh, you know, all white. Um, Look, I think it's, you know, a bit harder for women, a bit harder for candidates of color. But the last three nominees uh, have uh, been uh, an African-American or woman. The chairman of the party is a Latino. Elizabeth Warren is one of the finalists. I thought Kamala Harris and Carrie and, and Cory Booker had great potential. I think they're impressive politicians. They didn't run very good campaigns. Uh, they didn't have a whole lot to say. And I also think Cory Booker in particular, but Harris too, made a mistake by going left. I think they could have really been, you know, the real answer to Biden uh, and taking on Bernie because that's really where they both are. So I think it's a bit of a bum rap. Am I wrong? Well, it's a more complicated equation uh, because the candidates who tend to do the best among African-Americans and Hispanics are the two 70-something-year-old white guys <laughs> and Sanders and, uh, and, and Biden. Look, Biden has been... Um, 
uh, strong in this campaign since day one, in large part because of the the sort of deep connection and support he enjoys from the black community. Bernie Sanders has become a real force in California and is growing in Nevada, in part because he does really well with Hispanic voters, especially younger Hispanic voters. So, I you know, it's just difficult to say that, the, you know, uh, Democrats have a problem on race or gender, uh, given that some of the very voters who fall into sort of categories as as of voters of color are supporting the white candidates. Now, that's for complicated and sort of pragmatic in some cases um, uh, reasons, but uh, I think that sort of explains this primary. If Kamala Harris and Cory Booker had done better uh, with non-white voters, they wouldn't have dropped out. And so I think that was their challenge more than anything else is that the political allegiances of Democratic voters are not uh, simple. They're not straightforward. They're not simply sort of uh, aligned with the the gender or the race of the of said voter. It's more complicated than that. It's based upon relationships, history, views of who can win. Um, they're voters, and um, I think that sort of explains why we are where we are right now in this primary. Yeah, when Kamala Harris got in the race, she was the most interesting candidate there was. I mean, it was just <clears throat> everything about her screamed different. People were, God, what has she got to say? What, what, what kind of crowds is she getting? She 20,000 in Oakland. Yeah. And then she didn't have anything to say. And having covered that campaign pretty closely, I think that some of her own supporters would actually agree with you that, um, you, you know, not having, not having a coherent, clear consistent message was a huge part of her challenge. And I think that um, that campaign was sort of never sure how they wanted to present her. And they were, uh, you know, caught up in trying to position her ideologically. And um, it, it was a sort of challenge from day one, as her own folks would tell you. I mean, I will say, guys, it, it's striking if you talk to especially older black voters. Uh, it's a very pragmatic strain of politics and um, sort of 60-plus African-American voters who think, look, this is a country that after two terms of a black president elected Donald Trump, who sort of openly uh, demagogued uh, racial issues in, in his campaign, uh, that same country four years later, you know, might not be willing to turn to somebody who is, uh, you know, also going to make history, also going to sort of break barriers. We got to play it safe because white America uh, isn't going to want to sort of make history again. And the safest play that we can make to get him out of office is Joe Biden, who's an older white guy. That's the calculation that I've heard time and time again from older African-American voters. So, I, again, I think there is a, a sort of pragmatic strain uh, of, of, of politics here uh, in the, uh, the black community, especially among older blacks. You know, and looking at that Ann Selzer Iowa poll of about a week ago, James and I are, are Selzer sycophants. She's as good as there is uh, in the polling community. Well, a couple numbers uh, st- really, really uh, struck me more than the overall numbers. Among young voters, 35 and under, Bernie Sanders, 36 percent. He almost laps the field. No one's even close. 78 year old guy who just had a heart attack a few months ago is the darling uh, of young voters. Joe Biden, by the way, got four percent of young voters. What's Bernie's appeal to the young people? Is it the socialist pitch or what, John? It's incredible. I mean, it, it reminds me of that that great philosopher 
uh, of American politics, uh, uh, two Americas, as John Edwards famously put it. I mean, there are two Americas in this primary. There, there's young America and there's older America. A young America tends to like Bernie Sanders a heck of a lot more than, than older voters do. Why is it? I think it's in part because of ideology, Al. I think it's also uh, because they see him as sort of an unvarnished truth teller who speaks in straightforward ways, doesn't doesn't shade his his rhetoric, and he's somebody that they um, uh, believe has a sort of simple, coherent. Speaking of coherence, a simple, coherent, unadorned message about social justice, and um, you know, I think they like that authenticity. I think. I hear it time and time again. He's real. He's authentic. He is who he is. I think that is really a refreshing element for our younger voters in addition to the ideology. Yeah, clearly. I mean, <clears throat> the older blacks, you know, they have an expression, you know, did you walk the walk or talk to talk? And they feel like that Biden has walked the walk. And he particularly walked the walk as being Obama's vice president. And, and, and they look at, at Biden and they see a threat and say, you know what, this guy's been here. I know him. I trust him. I, I, a lot of you people have a lot of great plans, but uh, I'm not buying that right now. Uh, I'm going with what I know. And to that extent, they're very almost kind of conservative voters. Oh, yeah. No, no. There is definitely a sort of um, a caution that you see in the African-American community when it comes to their choices in Democratic primaries. And as both of you guys know, that's been a sort of truth to Democratic politics for decades. Now, they you know, historically have lined up with the more moderate establishment uh, nominee. You know, you can go back to the, the Mondale campaign against Harden 84, and that was certainly the case there. So this is not a new story. I, you were in grade school. That, John Martin, you were in grade yeah, school. Yeah, well, then. I was I, I was getting closer to junior high, but yeah, fair fair enough. Um, but no, I look, it's true, and I think it's even more pronounced, James, this time around because the urgency of getting Trump out of office is so powerful now that I think that conservatism that you mentioned is even more pronounced in terms of you know who can get this thing done for us. I don't want to fall in love. I just want to get this guy out. Well, for the Democrats, I, I, I think a third party is a, almost a bigger threat than Trump. I think if you got head-to-head with Trump, you're going to win. I think if you go head-to-head with Trump with a third party, then it becomes dicey. And you just can almost feel over there on the left that, you know, they're starting to realign here. That, that, I think that is the big danger of all of this. And by the way, that's why Warren in the last week, 10 days, has leaned into this pitch of she's the candidate that can unify all elements of the coalition. She can appeal to sort of left and middle uh, and be the, the strongest candidate against Trump. The implication being that Bernie can't win over the moderates and that Biden can't win over the left. So she is trying to frame herself. And by the way, she was such a policy issues candidate for all 2019. It's sort of striking for the press corps to hear her talk process like she is. But she's now trying to sort of make this case that that, that she is the, the unity candidate in the race. I just think that that case got harder in the last 48 hours because the hardcore Bernie folks are going to have a hard time, um, you know, f- forgiving and forgetting given what's happened here in terms of this accusation about whether or not he thinks a woman can win. Yeah, and based on 2018, Jonathan, there is there are indications that whatever we call them, the more liberal-leaning voters, the left, they didn't stay home. They voted for those those uh, kind of moderate progressives, and I, I doubt they will when it comes to Trump. Let me, just one addendum to the question of the Democrats and 
and uh, and gender and color. The, the the two most popular figures, according to polls uh, and the uh, among Democrats are Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi um, and Michelle Obama, too. I mean, that's hardly a party that, you know, has turned somehow right on those issues. But uh, uh, in any event, I think your point about about the practicality of particularly older black voters is a really good one. Yeah. And um, uh, the 2018 midterms have been kind of forgotten, I think, in this in this presidential race. But yeah, it was it was um, a surge of turnout uh, among Democratic voters and among voters who just supported Democrats because they wanted to send a message to Trump. And you're right that there was no real uh, discernment between, well, you know, in some states, the turnout was better because the candidates were were more pure or more moderate. They, they just turned out well everywhere. And I think what I'm curious about is, does that apply to this cycle with Trump himself on the ticket as well? Or is there really going to be heartburn uh, from one of the two sides if their nominee does not make it, the, the progressives and the moderates? Or are they just going to turn out, period, because they want to beat Trump so badly? Um, which is was what the case was in the midterms, where the candidates themselves are less well-known, and many voters are just showing up to pull a lever for, for the Ds. I would say Trump's the cure for heartburn. Yeah. Uh, it, it exists, and, tr- and Trump is the palliative. Uh, James, I want you to weigh in this, too. But, Jonathan, I think, uh, you know, I've covered Iowa caucuses for longer than I would care to admit. I mean, going back to 1976, and almost without exception, there's only one or two, and those were uh, unique. You know, you finish first or second in Iowa, you're dead. I think it's perfectly possible, a lot can happen in the next two and a half weeks, that all four of these candidates could come out of Iowa, you know, viable. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's a question of how closely they are bunched together, Al. Uh, I think if you've got one or two who are far ahead of the field, that's going to give them a nice burst. I think if they're all bunched up at 19 to 21, it's a different story. And uh, I think, you you know, it's possible that you could see four candidates uh, collectively move out of Iowa still very much in the fight. What I'm curious about, if Klobuchar, is how is victory defined there? My understanding from doing some reporting is that she wants to sort of break into that top four and and push one of the current top four down. And that would give her a rationale to go forward if she breaks into that top four space. But again, to me, the question is, how closely tied together are they? And is there any separation at all? Well, Klobuchar cannot say, hey, I finished a good fifth. I mean, that, that, that just I agree. doesn't I, I agree cut with it. That. She's got to knock That's somebody right. off. And, and, you know, there was a lot of talk about how well she did in the last debate. She gets great press coverage in Washington. And then Ann Selzer came out and said she's at 6%. I know. It had, it, it's happened time and time again, too, where she gets you know, nice coverage following a debate. She gets a, a good burst of money online following a debate. And we kind of wait for this boomlet, and it just doesn't happen out there. So if it's not happening now in the next week, 10 days, it ain't going to happen. So uh, let's go to a caucus night. Now, we know that, that the turnout is going to be breathtakingly high. And it, we know it's going to be complicated. I, I, you know, the, the returns, how they come in, it, it's going to be very important that if somebody kind of leads early. I'd rather be in the lead at, you know, 1130 at night. And then when you wake up in the morning, they said, well, actually, you know, western part of the state came in. It wasn't as good. But we, we don't have any experience with interpreting and counting this level of, of, of turnout that we're going to see here on 
Monday, three weeks. Yeah, I mean, I look, I think um, the turnout will probably hit 2008 levels when you had Obama bringing a lot of new people into the process. I think it's going to it's going to soar. Um, the Iowa Democrats say that they're ready, but, you know, I don't want to complicate this too much for your listeners, but um, it's going to be a more sort of transparent um, process in terms of revealing numbers that I think could make this thing even more complicated uh, to, to keep it simple. They're now going to release the first um, the first raw vote totals of who got how many votes in the initial count at these caucuses. So you could have a candidate who has more raw votes at the outset, but then in the second and final vote, when the the voters realign, to borrow the phrase the Iowans use, you could have somebody else who winds up with having the most votes. Because if you don't hit 15% as a candidate in that first vote, then your supporters have an option of either leaving the caucus or joining forces with a different candidate. And so it's that latter possibility that could give somebody an edge in the second balloting, even if they didn't have the most raw votes in the first vote, if that makes sense. And I think the key to whether someone's going to get 22 or 24 percent is how well they do in those rooms. Uh, I mean, last time, uh, according to all evidence we have, uh, it was Ted Cruz being able to swarm the room and pick up Ben Carson and other delegates who didn't make that their show, which is why, in the end, he actually defeated Donald Trump in Iowa. And uh, from what I mean, Bernie's done it before. Presumably he's prepared for that. Warren and Buttigieg say they are. There's some questions about Biden. But that's a really important point at the end if it's a close four way race. And and look, I expect if you have somebody who has the most raw votes in the first vote, but they don't ultimately have the most votes in the second and final tally, I fully expect that their staff is going to go, you know, and overdrive with the spin and just say, look, we got the most votes, period. More Iowans showed up to caucus for us than any other candidate. We won the most votes. And I think that could sort of create a ferocious spin contest going to New Hampshire. Yeah. You know, my experience from being there up close is that Warren and Buttigieg have the best operations in terms of being able to do just that county by county. Uh, they've got the best uh, organization at the precinct level, and they're going to have the poss- the capability of being able to sort of, you know, find those, those uh, second choice of voters who could be so crucial here on caucus night. Well, listen, John Martin, this has been terrific. Uh, uh, And uh, two and a half weeks, uh, my guess is it may be an exciting night, but it won't equal the LSU-Clemson game, but that's okay. I don't think any caucus, Al, is going to be able to equal the LSU-Clemson game for for, uh, James and I. But look, thanks for having me on. Um, uh, It's great to be with with, uh, both of you guys who I know have seen a few of these caucuses here over the years, so I enjoyed it. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks, James. Thanks, Al. James, all right, after a week's absence, which was sorely felt by us and all of our listeners, we have Christy Numbers Harvey back on today. What do you have for us, Numbers? All right, fellas, look, I'm not going to lie. Technically, I did have the flu last week, but really, I was spending about 90% of my time focused on what's happening with the Astros cheating scandal. Won't get into it now, but I'm pretty prepared in case they uh, tap me to be the new commissioner of baseball. But (laughs) I did take a few minutes to focus on a couple of other numbers, and I'm going to run them by you. Okay. My first 
number is $307 million. Now, this is the amount of money that Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg together have already put into their campaigns. Uh, Steyer's at $106 million, and we saw what that's done in Nevada and South Carolina. It's been enough to get him in this week's debate. And also, um, Bloomberg has put $211 million into California and Texas and Florida, and he's all the way up around uh, fifth in the national polls. So here's my question. Uh, Hunt, I'll start with you. We know that money talks, but are these guys buying their way into an election or do you think they're simply filling a void that these other candidates aren't being able to fill? What do you think? Well, of course, they're buying their way into an election. (laughs) That's why you spend that kind of money. I mean, Tom Steyer shouldn't have been on that stage last night. There were other candidates that would have been, you know, I would have rather had Cory Booker or someone else there, but he didn't have one hundred and six million dollars to get up to 12 percent in Nevada. As for Michael Bloomberg, listen, if this if these four guys or these three, this woman and the other three guys all survive those first four contests and we go into with a fairly even race into March 3rd and Super Tuesday, Michael Bloomberg's money is going to matter a lot and he's going to come out with a bunch of delegates. James, is this a bad thing or is this just how the system works these days? It's just a thing. <laughs> yeah. OK, it. uh I guess the way the system works these days, it's able to do that. Supreme Court, not, you know, other than you pass a constitutional amendment, limiting money in politics, it, this is just the way that you go. And it's not going to change. Well, I'm, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit here um, to my second number, which is four. Uh, so last week, Donald Trump was talking about all of the actions he's been taking in Iran and said that all of this had to happen now because he believed, quote unquote, believed that Iran was planning imminent attacks on four U.S. embassies. Now, this claim was not repeated in the briefing that Esper and Pompeo had with lawmakers. And then Defense Secretary Esper walked it back on the Sunday shows. So as I'm still trying to get my head around all of this Iran stuff, it, it feels really slippery to me still. Um, I I just had a, wanted to hear you guys out on this. Uh, James, I'll start with you. Um, that constant hyperbole and the gilding of the lily that Donald Trump does, I know is super annoying, but how dangerous is it, especially when we're talking Iran? Everything he does is dangerous. I, I, I mean, I, I last night, I, I think that Trump and Trumpism is the greatest threat to this country since communism. Maybe more because more people will be attracted to racism than socialism in America. I don't think a guy has any idea what he's doing. I think the people around him that know anything are scared to death. I think he's unstable. I, I don't think this is at all normal. I, I wish there was something I could do about it. There's not very much. Christy, going back to your number four, yeah. there's, there's a simple explanation. He made it up. He invented right. it. I mean, it could have been three. It could have been 14. It could have been 16 or 17 because he was to put it nicely line, which he does what 15,000 times since he's been president. And uh, you know, the fact that his defense secretary and secretary of state uh, and national security advisor had to gild it. It's just, you know, as James says, uh, you know, we've never seen him like this. It's nothing. What they ought to do is quit doing every time he lies. It is every, if he ever tells the truth, they should put a headline. Start to count. <laughs> Start to count. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. Uh, I have one final one, and that is 71. And this one's for you, James. Uh, This season, 71 of LSU's 91 touchdown drives took three minutes or less. Look, it takes me longer than that to fix a cup of coffee. Uh, That's pretty impressive. So, James, I saw on CBS Sports, they were asking, is this the best team, the best season, the best player, and the best coach of all time? Uh, So I just thought I'd throw it out to you. Is it? Uh, 71, Nebraska. You know, some people claim it's the only team in the history of college football to beat seven teams that were in the top ten when they played them. Uh, and Joe Burr shouted passing records, you know, like, oh, look at Colt Brennan at Hawaii. Well, who did Colt Brennan in Hawaii play? I mean, if you take across the board, the quality of the opposition, the margin of victory and everything, I, it's hard for me to say that there's been a better team in college football. I mean, and we forget how good Clemson was. What Clemson did to Alabama last year, and, you know, I mean, it it's been a remarkable year. I can't deny. I have one number, and I saw it just a minute ago. 100 billion. That's the number of doses of Oxycontin that were shipped in the United States between 2006 and 2014. 100 billion. How can you make 100 billion of those things? And I don't know who's winning these lawsuits, but, man, I'm very happy for you. I hope you win more. Yeah, I am too, and they're winning them in all and and in all kinds of places. I agree. Man, uh, and everybody ought to pay for this and more. Absolutely. Okay, numbers. It's great to have you back. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm going to time you. I'll bet you can make a cup of coffee in uh, quicker than three minutes, but we'll see. <laughs> huh? Very particular with my coffee. You know that, Albert. All right. Okay, guys. Right. See you right. next week. Take care. Bye. Bye. James? Yes, sir. Let's do a back page. Now, you know, uh, we we specialize in politics in this show. That's why I think most people listen. But we also have some other interests, and we think some things that are, you know, both relevant or at least interesting, history and military and other things. But one in particular, and this week, there cannot be a better week to talk about it, is sports. Uh, and let's start with that Monday night game where you were there in New Orleans. It's your alma mater. Uh, two teams, 14 and zero, uh, as big a buildup as we have ever seen. Uh, so just describe it and and describe your reactions. Well, let's start. Of course, it's in New Orleans. A couple of things. There were a, maybe a third of the people there were Clemson people. They travel well. They really support their football team. And that was a universal observation down there. Um you know, what this team has meant to the state, I mean, just given the fact that Ozero is so Louisiana, such a story of redemption, you know, the whole Barra-Heisman trophy, I just couldn't imagine what it was like. It, you know, <clears throat> there are teams in college football, and they're good, and you see them, you know, this team is going to be remembered for a long time. And by the way, they had 25 million viewers, the highest-rated program on cable TV in the last twenty in the last two years. Uh, it, it they keep going and have success that LSU is going to establish itself as a national brand because Ozone is just a more sympathetic person than, than Saban or Dabo Sweeney or Urban Meyer was any of these kind of big name coaches. I mean, Ozone is a guy that's easy for fans to like. 
and he will, after Joe Burr, he becomes the real face of our program. So I, th- I think we're looking good going forward. Well, I do too. Now, you know, I'm not quite ready to put him in the Nick Saban category yet. He's got I, one. I did not uh, put him. I was saying in terms of the way that fans look at him, he's a much more likable person than Saban. Of course, I'm not saying he's his coaching record, but when, when I'm saying or Urban Meyer or even Dabo, they're not as likable as, as Ozell is. They're not as approachable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that's the point I was making. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, it, it was a, it ended up a, a fat, I mean, Clemson was good. I mean, this was not, I mean, they played a good game, uh, and, uh, you know, when they were up by 10, were you worried? Yes. It was panicked, but I shouldn't have. <laughs> I mean, cause I've seen these guys do it so many times and I was worried right till we recovered that fumble, but that's me. I mean, I'm gonna worry right, right to the end. I mean, Trouble Lawrence had that game against Ohio state. I mean, you're always wondering, you, you know, he had a bad, he, he overthrew like eight receivers. Uh, but we had something to do with that, too. And, you know, just Barr is just that good. I mean, <laughs> and our receivers are. Yeah, I, I thought, I mean, they're two great coaching staffs. By the way, I saw where your offensive coordinator is going to the Carolina Panthers. He's that, you know, that's a... That says, you know, an awful lot about him. I thought, I mean, they're two great coaching staffs. The one mistake I thought Clemson made, to try to guard, who's your player number one? God, he's Jamar good. Chase. I mean, to try to guard him one-on-one was 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 insane. Uh, that guy was an All-American. I mean, you just cannot guard him one-on-one. Now, maybe you give up something else, but you knew you were going to get, what, what did he score, three touchdowns? I mean, it was. it was. The problem he, is, if if you, if, if you double team him, then you got Jefferson, you got Terrence you Marshall, do. You, you got do. Thaddeus Moss. Yeah. I mean, they did, they're just too many weapons. Yeah, there were a lot. I mean, they just, they just do. And I mean, plus it, that guy didn't do a bad job of covering Jamar to just to borrow it, throw the ball right in the basket. and didn't make a catch that you, was unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, man, he is good. Uh, let's switch sports, major league baseball. But in what may be the biggest scandal since the Black Sox uh, 101 years ago, the Houston Astros were caught cheating. Uh, the Major League Baseball commissioner uh, suspended the manager and the general manager. The Astros then fired uh, both of them. They were stealing signs and throughout the entire 19, 2017, 18 seasons, including their 17 World Series victory. And it ends up the Red Sox, the Bench coach then was the now Red, who was the Red Sox manager. Uh, he too was he was really fired uh, yesterday. The Red Sox are being investigated. Um, this is this is a problem for baseball. Che- fans don't like cheating. Yeah, I, look, everything's been said. I, I agree with everything that's been said. But but stop and think of this for a second. They put the center field camera and it's adjacent to the dugout. All right. That, that, that's like telling a high school football team that you walk in by the, the girl's shower and the door's open, but don't look, all right? Don't look. So right there in the dugout, you have the capacity to steal signs. It's hard to say I'm not going to do that. I mean, it's almost like, shit, go back there and look, and whenever I get in a changeup, you know, let me know. And uh, they, they're punished. That they're going to be punished. It, it it made a difference. It was against the rules. But, man, there, there was a lot of temptation out there. I'll tell you that. 
Well, there may have been. I don't know how many others, though, uh, took that temptation. They did it, and they did it flagrantly. It was really done methodically, and it was done, uh, you know, with drums and signals and everything else. I must say, I, I thought the coming down hard was right. I don't quite understand why that owner of the Houston Astros wasn't suspended at least for a year. They said the general manager was suspended because he was in charge of it, not that he he did it. Well, who's in charge of him? Uh, I mean, I think the owner got off light, and I'll tell you why. Because that's who, that's one of Manfred's bosses. And I'll just, a quick story. One time, Weich Fowler, a former congressman, senator from Georgia, was applying for baseball commissioner. And he went in there and he told the uh, baseball owners, he said, you know, I can bring you, you're going to have a lot of political issues, and I can really help you with that. And Steinbrenner said, why would we hire a little pissant like you where we could get someone like Colin Powell? And Weiss looked at him and said, because you don't want to get someone you can't fire. Well, uh, Manford knows he can be fired. And I and I think I think I think the owner of the Astros got off really easy. Yeah, probably did. I mean, it makes more sense. I mean, he fired, you know, Hinch and Ludow, but uh, he had to know about it, too. I mean, it's his team. But the owners don't accept responsibility. Yeah, that's not going to happen. No, 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 that's absolutely right. I, I, you know, I think it will be, I think, like the um, steroids uh, crisis of, of, of 15 or 20 years ago. You know, I think it will have a, a preventive effect. I think it's, I think teams are going to think twice again before they cheat. Also, our Nationals, James, you know, in preparing for the World Series, came up with this incredibly complex system of changing every pitcher had a different signal, you know, one right. because they I saw that. because they thought the Astros were likely to be cheating again. Yep, they did. I mean, they they, they dealt with it. Well, the way they used to deal with it, they just throw at your head. You, you know, you're right. I mean, it's not there with the temptation was there. Also, it's not new. Uh, I used to work for the Wall Street Journal, and they broke a marvelous story some years ago that the most famous home run of all times. 1951, Bobby Thompson against Ralph Brank in the polo grounds to win the pennant for the New York Giants, that the Giants stole the signal, and Thompson knew what pitch Ralph Brank was throwing. There's a, a whole book about it called Echo in the Green. It's pretty good. I mean, it's very, very detailed and very, very compelling. Yeah, yeah. You know, Bobby Thompson, you know? Uh, Bobby Thompson took the train to Staten Island after that game. Uh, times have changed a lot. Have they changed oh, a lot? Wow. My goodness, man. Well, this has been fun. John Martin was a guy. Oh, Johnson Martin was just, you know, I, I watched some of the shows last night. And the part of the quality of the commentators just varies so much. I thought, obviously, like David Plump was very good. Uh, some of them just have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Axelrod was good. And some of the others, you know, you didn't know what they were saying. Uh, but, uh, and I do, I, I really think that... Um, I think CNN blew that Sanders Warren thing. I don't I say I'm not into gotcha, but but I mean that they were actually they were actually calling each other liars, and uh, you know someone should have followed up with that. But you know we'll see what happens. Yeah, somebody, let, let's run this through again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, listen again. I want you to keep celebrating uh, the most fabulous victory maybe in the history of college football, and. Uh, we will look forward to uh, to next week. Uh, but you know, one thing we did not talk about yeah. is this new revelation in the imp- impeachment inquiry that you know the Lev Parnas notes and right. text. You know, you think that's going to move any Republicans to vote? 
I, 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 James, what I have, have thought and continue to think is they will come up with some cosmetic approach to witnesses. They will be limited. It'll be curtailed. Uh, and it'll be, as I say, largely cosmetic. I think the importance of the Parnas, uh, you know, basically trying to give Rudy, you know, dirt, which is what they were all after on on Hunter Biden. And also the Russians were tapping into that that uh, that company. The Russians were trying to do Trump's bidding, too. So what what that shows is that every week, every month, something new is going to come out. And those Republicans may feel perfectly confident on February the 10th when they vote to acquit. But they shouldn't forget something else is going to come out on February the 22nd and on March the 17th and, uh, you know, down the road. Yep. The more, you know, you keep all that out and it just keeps coming after, you know, evidence just keeps piling in. Right. Right. No, it does. Correct. All right. Well, this has been fun today. Good talking to you. And I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, And again, please subscribe to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville and Albert Hunt. Uh, You can go to uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening.